0: If you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Kings uh, chapter 6, and if you are new with us, what we do is we're committed to Christ-centered expositional preaching. Christ-centered means that uh, Jesus is the hero of our sermons, and expositional means, it just comes from the word to exposit, means to explain, and so we work our way through sections of the Bible uh, explaining the text in its context and then listening Again, to hear what God will say to us. Uh, The other night I was up late reading and uh, it was around midnight. It was very quiet in our house and everybody else had gone to sleep, uh, at least as far as I knew. And I was getting ready to go to bed and so I saw some boxes on on our counter. I took some boxes out to the garage and I put them in the recycling bin. And as I was coming back in the house from the garage, I opened the door, I stepped inside, out jumped my 20-year-old daughter... Screaming loudly, Dad, uh, trying to scare me, which she did scare me. She nearly gave me a heart attack. Um, it was a good thing actually that I had just recently gone to the bathroom. We would have had a mess on our hands, um, but it worked. I mean, it really worked. She got me. She's pretty good. And you uh, know, in, in all fairness, I do this to her as well. So it's not her own, just her own uh, sort of habit. Um, but the worst thing about that is, over the next couple of days, every time I left a room and re-entered, I had to peek around the corner to make sure that uh, she wasn't lurching, uh, ready to uh, to pounce on me. Uh, well, imagine if you had to live life with the constant fear that you could at any moment be overtaken. Imagine if you lived in a country where the surrounding nations were at any moment ready to pounce, and they didn't, didn't just want to scare you, they wanted to kill you and enslave you. Of course, not hard for us to imagine, isn't it? This is what some folks are going through even in places uh, in our world today. Uh, well, here we are, we're continuing our series through uh, 2 Kings. And by the way, First and 2 Kings was originally just one book called the Book of Kings, which appeared in, well, the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. And what it did is it detailed the accounts, the exploits, the, the victories and successes of the kings of Israel and Judah. Some of those were glorious victories and some were uh, spectacular defeats. Um, And in the passage we're in this morning in 2 Kings 6, we're going to be see see this ongoing struggle between the nation of Israel and the nation of Syria, also known as Aram. Uh, Now, Israel and Syria have had bad blood for a long time, many, many years, hundreds of years, uh, in fact, uh, going all the way back, at least in earnest, to when King David uh, smote the Syrians at the Valley of Salt. And and from that point, you've had this really bad history, and you've had a war that's been raging for many, many years. Well, when we get to 2 Kings 6, Israel and Syria are in the middle of a a battle that has been flaring up over the years, and in fact has been raging for decades. So at any moment during this 60-plus-year span... Israel knows that Syria could attack and overwhelm them with their military might. So we're looking at this uh, situation here, and we're looking at the prophets Elijah and Elisha, seeing how they point us to Jesus. Um, But again, just keep in mind as we read the text here that there's this ongoing, decades-long battle between Israel and Syria and it has caused a sort of situation in Israel where there's there's a lot of consternation and angst. And as we look at this, we're going to see something about God actually that may surprise us—that uh, that God is actually sovereign over the senses, even over human senses. So, Second uh, Kings—we're going to cover. Uh, we'll start by looking at verse eight. We looked at verses one through seven in a previous week. Here reads the word of the Lord: Once, when the king of Syria was war- uh, warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the uh, the place about which the man of God told him, Thus uh, thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. So again, so Syria and Israel at war, They've been at war off and on for a long time. And uh, the king of Assyria, Ben-Hadad II, he decides that he's going to make an attack against Israel. And he has determined the place, which he believes is a strategic location. And he tells his servants where he will make that attack. Now, let me just give you an idea of the landscape here. Let me show you a map. Um, So you can see Syria, which is in green. Well, it's actually a blue-green blue, really, and the upper right. It was green on my slide. And so upper right is is Syria, also called Aram, of which the capital uh, is uh, Damascus. And then to, I guess, the uh, southwest is a darker color blue. That's the nation of Israel. And the capital of Israel is Samaria. And the distance between the two capitals Uh, Again, Samaria and Damascus is about a little over 700 miles. So if you were to make a plan, if you're going to plan to attack one of these uh, cities, you didn't do it overnight because you had hundreds of miles to traverse. And so the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad II, has put this strategy together. He has identified the place where he will attack the people of Israel. And he tells his servants the place. But God reveals to Elisha, the prophet, what the king of Syria is telling his servants. And Elisha tells the king of Israel, look, I want you to know, don't go any farther than this, because if you do, you will encounter the armies of Syria. So I'm just telling you, don't go any farther than this. He wants to make sure that Syria is not able to ambush the Israelite armies. And so he tells the king of Israel, Elisha does this, which means the king of Israel will not go that far, which means the king of Syria, and this place that he's identified, he goes there, but there's no one to ambush. Now look at verses 11 through 14. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, none, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, this is the king of Syria, saying, go and seize him, see where he is, that I might send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. So the king of Israel, the king of Syria, rather, he's very angry because he thinks there's a traitor in his army. And he says, "I want you to tell me who's the traitor here? Where is the mole in my army?" Well, his servants say, "No, that, it's not that way at all, King. Actually, see, Elisha knows what you are saying, even in the secrecy of your bedroom." Now, when I thought about a title for this sermon. I thought a couple things came to mind, Um, bedroom talk, um, dirty secrets. I thought there's a way to maybe increase our online traffic. Um, But since I don't really care about those things, I went instead with uh, sovereign over the senses. Um, But what we see here is the servants of Ben-Hadad II the king of Syria say, listen, this prophet of God, he knows everything you say. He knows your pillow talk. He knows what you're saying in the king's bedroom with the door closed. He knows exactly what you're saying. Now, they didn't know how he knew that. They didn't know how Elisha knew it. Uh, They didn't know the the means by by which he obtained this information. What they didn't know was that Elijah only knew those things because the all-knowing and sovereign God of the universe was disclosing these things to Elisha. So throughout the Bible... We are presented with a God who knows everything. Theologians refer to this as God's omniscience. God knows every word we say. He knows every thought we think. He knows uh, everything that has happened, everything that is currently happening, and everything that will happen with absolute certainty, with 100% accuracy. Because God knows everything, including all possibilities, God never learns anything. You realize this? God never learns anything. He already knows everything that can be known and everything that is even unknowable to us as human beings. In 2019, Matthew Barrett, who's a professor at the Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote a great book on the doctrine of God called None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God. We've got at least one of our Capshaw students, maybe two uh, young, young adults who are actually there right now at that seminary. It's a great, great place. Anyway, this is what he said in this book. Barrett writes, God's knowledge is not a posteriori, which is Latin, which means learn from experience, like the creatures, as if he knew by observing. But his knowledge is a priori, meaning he observes what he already knows and decreed eternally. For that reason, your theological uh, antennae should stand up whenever you hear someone attempt to limit or condition what God knows upon what human creatures do or think. In other words, God knows what can be seen and what's unseen. God knows what is said and what is unsaid. He knows our thoughts, even if we don't utter them out loud. He knows what will happen and even what could have happened but didn't happen. And here in our passage, the servants of the king of Syria rightly conclude that somehow this prophet of God knows the things that are said even in the king's bedroom. Here's our first point this morning if you're taking notes. The eyes and ears of the Lord see and hear everything. Even our thoughts are laid bare before him. The eyes and ears of the Lord see it all and hear it all, even those things that are unsaid. Every word that we say is heard by God. Every thought that we think, completely known by God. There's a great scene in in 1 Samuel 16, talking about the history of Israel, where um, God is going to appoint. He sends Samuel the prophet to to anoint a, a new king of Israel, and he sends the prophet Samuel to the house of Jesse, who lived in Bethlehem, and he says, the prophet tells Jesse, hey, one of your boys is, is going to be the king of Israel. And so Jesse, a, a dutiful father, he brings in his first son, this big, strapping, you know, muscular dude. And everybody thinks for a moment, well, this has got to be the guy, right? This is the guy. It's not him. He brings his next son in. Again, a true warrior. It's not the guy. He brings seven sons. He parades seven sons in front of Jesse. Uh, it's in front of Samuel. And with all of them, the Lord makes it very clear, this is not the guy. So Samuel says, well, do you have another, another kid, another son? Well, I do have this other son. He's, out, he, he, he's more likely to appear on GQ than field and stream. I mean, he, he's, he's kind of a, he's a real handsome guy, but he's a little soft, uh, but he's out actually with the sheep right now. And so Samuel says, bring him in. Of course, it's David. Brings him in and uh, and they end up anointing, ends up anointing David as king. And then and, and, and Samuel reveals something of the Lord that's very telling. And he says, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And of course, we look at that, and, and you read that, and most of the time people take that as a very good, very good news. And it is good news of sorts, but it's also very terrifying. Because it means that God sees what's in our hearts He knows exactly what's in our hearts, and we can dress it up, and we can put on, you know, the finest clothing or whatever, but God actually sees us at the heart level. He knows what's going on, and and I say it's terrifying. It's it's a terrifying thing to think that God knows our every thought, isn't it? Now, unless we know something about his mercy and his grace, which we'll see in the same passage in a moment, uh, it can be a debilitating notion. If it's not a terrifying thought, if you think for yourself, and I'm not... I don't know if anybody's thinking this. You may not be. But if anybody thinks this morning, you know, it's not really a terrifying thought to me to think that God knows my every thought that crosses my mind. It's because you don't really understand sin. You don't really understand the nature of sin. Too often sin is regarded as as simply active disobedience. In other words, saying or doing something wrong you know, a sort of willful, volitional act, but it's, theologically speaking, biblically speaking, it's way, way deeper than that. Theologian and counselor David Pallison writes, this instinctive view of sin, that it's just kind of what we do on the surface, infects many Christians and almost all non-Christians, It has a long legacy in the church under the label uh, Pelagianism, one of the oldest heresies. The Bible's view of sin certainly includes the high-handed sins where evil approaches full volitional awareness. That is, we know exactly what we're doing at the moment. But sin also includes what we simply are and the perverse ways that we think, want, remember, and react Most sin is invisible to the sinner because it is simply how the sinner works, how the sinner perceives, wants, and interprets things. So the reason we should be terrified that God knows our thoughts is because our thoughts are self-centered, self-seeking, self-glorifying, and idolatrous even when we don't fully realize the extent of it. It's why in every... Premarriage, marriage every couple that I lead through premarriage counseling, I talk through the absolute necessity of being self-suspicious. We have to learn to be self-suspicious. In other words, recognizing, being suspicious of ourselves, recognizing that, yeah, you know what? On the surface, maybe that didn't seem to be or didn't feel like it was passive-aggressive. Maybe it didn't feel like it was spiteful. Maybe it didn't feel like it was self-seeking, but the reality is it probably was. As my friend who's a worship pastor on the East Coast, he says to people, yeah, just, just yeah, tell me my junk, I, and, I'm, and I'll admit it, because it's probably true. Tell me the way that you believe I've wronged you. You know, I probably have. It's being self-suspicious, recognizing the very nature of sin. But our self-centered, idolatrous, and perverse thoughts need not condemn us, as we'll see in a minute. Now look at verses 15 through 19. So you got Syria, which is the armies encamped around Elisha. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? This is Elisha speaking, verse 16. He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike the people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. So, again, if we can, we can envision this, the armies of Syria have surrounded, I mean, armies, soldiers, chariots, warriors have surrounded Elisha, and they want to take him in, and they want to have him seized and beheaded. So they, they have, you know, ill motives here. And the servant of Elisha, which is pr- probably still Gehazi, we have no indication it's a different servant at this point, he gets up in the morning, you know, kind of opens the blinds as it were, and he looks out and he sees this great army with all the ch- horses and chariots and warriors. And of course, he's numb with fear. I mean, absolutely terrified. But Elisha says to him, there are more with us than there are with them. And I'm sure Gehazi thought, this guy has lost his mind. I'm looking right now, like I'm actually looking outside. How can you say there are more with us than there are with them? But then Elisha prays to the Lord, and the Lord opens Gehazi's eyes so that he can see the vast army of the Lord, warriors on horses and and chariots of fire surrounding the Syrians, even though the Syrians didn't realize it. And what he says to Gehazi is, in essence, things aren't always as they appear. Here's our second point this morning. Reality, but what's really going on in our lives and in our world, can rarely be ascertained by ordinary sight. So what's actually really, truly happening in the world and truly happening in our lives cannot be accurately understood with ordinary sight. What God is doing in our lives and in our world can only be fully seen with the eyes of faith, a faith which is given to us by God, as it was in the case of Gehazi, Elisha's servant. What we, what we can see, what we can read about, what we can hear with our senses and conclusions reached thereby can lead us to believe that this the world is hopeless, that God is absent, that we are absolutely going to be overwhelmed and overtaken by evil. But what is really going on, what's really happening, is being governed by a sovereign God who is working in ways we cannot see and could never even imagine just based on appearances. You know, it occurred to me recently that there are, there are some phrases that we use these days, In fact, uh, are fairly ubiquitous. We hear them all the time. We use them all the time. They never would have been said by anyone 20 years ago, or if they were said, they would have made any sense at all. So, for example, if you're looking on your phone and and someone says, what are you doing? You say, well, I have angry birds on my phone. Um, That would have made no sense 20 years ago at all, right? I said, what what do you mean? I don't see any angry birds on your phone. Of course, that's a that's a video game. Or if you said to someone, if you said to someone, I have all my contacts stored in the cloud. Twenty years ago, they would have said, What in the world are you talking about? Or if you ask someone a question, they say, I don't know, I'm gonna ask Siri. They said, Well, where is Siri and how does she know everything? There's some things that we say now that would never have made sense. Um, I don't have cable, I stream all my TV shows. Nobody would have understood that 20 years ago. Or, we had dinner last night with my father-in-law who was passing through town. He said, and I guarantee you 20 years ago no one would have ever said this. He said, I just ordered a beach chair by DoorDash. Um, It came right to my door by DoorDash, a beach chair. Now, he could have said, he didn't say this, but he could have said, and I paid for it with Bitcoin." He didn't say that, but, but imagine if we heard somebody say that 20 years ago. Nobody would have understood that at all, right? It made no sense. Now, on a much more serious note, there's one phrase that we, that we wouldn't have heard, at least to the extent that we hear constantly now, all the time, all of our personal interactions, television shows, whatever, and it's this, I just have so much anxiety about that. Or that just gives me so much anxiety. Never before have we heard so many, po- so many people claim to be riddled with anxiety. And often in a way that prevents them from doing normal everyday activities. Now please hear me. I'm not, I'm not disparaging those who struggle with anxiety. I'm not saying that anxiety is not real. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that no one ever has anxiety. Of course not. I believe there are physiological, emotional, spiritual, traumatic experiences that absolutely can trigger real anxiety. But what I'm saying is, unlike ever before, certainly 20 years ago, we we throw that phrase around all the time. Even young kids, I hear, five, six, seven, eight years old, talk about having anxiety. Everybody has anxiety over everything. So we see this all the time. And again, again, fears and anxieties are real. But I wonder how many of our fears and anxieties are the result of actual spiritual myopia. We we just don't see things as they truly are. We look at our world and we conclude by our senses that things must be a certain way, that God is absent in all this, that God does not have the power to remedy, that God does not have the power to come to my aid. And we make these conclusions based on what we see. We tend to believe that the only reality is the reality that we can see. And we fail to take into consideration the invisible world, the invisible kingdom of God, which God himself promises that he is advancing at this very moment, the invisible power of God, the invisible plan of God that is known only to him, and a plan which he says includes the loving protection and provision for his own children, even the provision of an eternal home. We have uh, we have a, a granddaughter now. You couldn't possibly not know that as much as we talk about it. And uh, our granddaughter, who's almost, almost five months old, was born with, born with two holes in her heart. And so, of course, you know, this is, you know, it's devastating and, and heartbreaking and, and heavy and weighty. Now, it's not, it's not, terribly uncommon. In other words, of course, this happens to, to babies. Um, but as a result, my son and daughter-in-law, they, have to, they take uh, Peyton, the, their daughter, into the see the doctor on a regular basis multiple times over the last five months. And by all appearances, you know, all the echogram and, and whatever, um, by all appearances, this is not going to heal on its own. And so this little baby is going to have to have open heart surgery probably at 8 or 9 months old and of course that is a, a harrowing horrible devastating heartbreaking thing but if we were just looking at what we could see by way of imaging and so on we might conclude this i mean this this is no hope for this baby but when we look beyond what we can see and we know that there's actually a god who loves my granddaughter more than i do it's hard to believe but it's true He loves my granddaughter more than I do. He loves their daughter, my son and daughter-in-law's daughter, more than they do. And he is working in his infinite power to bring about a solution that is for their good and for that baby's good and for his glory. Just by looking at the immediate surroundings, things may not look very good. But by God's grace, they're looking beyond that and they're looking into trusting in God to see what God has for them next. Elisha's servant Gehazi is anxious, definitely. He is terrified by what he sees with his eyes. And when God enables him to see the the fullness of reality, when the curtain of the invisible world is pulled back, as it were, and Gehazi sees with the eyes of faith, he's no longer afraid. His anxiety is gone because he becomes fully aware of God's powerful presence and God's care for him. When we're afraid and and we feel anxious and and we feel worried or concerned, what we should pray is, Father, give me eyes of faith. Help me to see all that you have done and all that you are doing in my own life and in our world. Now, of course, God's not going to reveal this sort of exhaustive knowledge where we know everything. But God answers that prayer. And he allows us to see things with the eyes of faith beyond just the limited view of our senses. Well, all of a sudden, Gehazi can see what's going on. He sees God's invisible army. But the Syrians, they don't realize they're surrounded by an army. And so just as God has given Gehazi the ability to see clearly, he now prevents the Syrian army from seeing. Um, by the way, the Hebrew word for blindness in verse 18, God struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha, is not the normal Hebrew word for, for, used for blindness, the Old Testament written in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek, and, and, and the normal word for blindness is not used here, but a kind of an unusual word that only appears twice in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures, once here and once in Genesis 19, and it probably doesn't mean blindness in the sense that, you know, I can't see anything but total darkness. It it tends to have a different meaning of, like, you know, have you ever looked into the sun and just brightly into the sun, and I know you're not supposed to do this, but, and then you kind of look away and there's that, you see the glare, you're kind of fuzzy, you're dazed, you don't see right. That's kind of the gist of it. So they can't really see, they're they're probably not stumbling around in complete blindness, but they don't see, they don't see who's leading them. They had this big, uh, uh, blurry spot, and Elisha leads them all the way from Dothan to Samaria, which, again, is the capital of Israel. Dothan was 11 miles uh, from Samaria, so, and it had to, you had to go through the desert valley to get there. You, you know, There wasn't a whole bunch of options on how to get there. So Elisha leads the people who are vision impaired, not realizing but that they're being led by the same person that they want to kill, and he takes them uh, to... Samaria now look at verses 20 through 23 as soon as they entered Samaria Elisha said "O Lord open the eyes of these men that they may see so the Lord opened their eyes and they saw and behold they were in the midst of Samaria as soon as the king of Israel saw them he said to Elisha my father shall I strike them down shall I strike them down this is the king of Israel speaking to Elisha Elisha answered you shall not strike them down Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. This is really, it's easy to overlook how incredible this is. So he prepared for them a feast, the king of Israel, to the Syrian captives. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel." So when Elisha arrives in Samaria with the men, he prays that God would restore their sight, and God does. Um, And immediately, upon seeing the Syrian army in his fortified city, the king of Israel sees an opportunity to pounce and to destroy. And so the king of Israel says to Elisha, my father, shall I strike them down? He asks them that twice. Shall I strike them down? Now, this is really, really odd for two reasons. One, the king of Israel refers to Elisha the prophet as my father. Now, if we understand something about kings and kingdoms in the ancient Near East, kings wielded absolute authority. They were all-powerful, humanly speaking. In fact, in some of the pagan surrounding lands, kings were actually worshipped as gods. And so for the king to refer to Elisha as my father... This would have been so odd coming from the mouth of a king. Again, kings were to be feared. Kings exercised authority. For the king of Israel to refer to Elisha as my father meant that the king had surrendered to Elisha his power and authority. Elisha was now now the person of power here. So Elisha was the one in control. Now, the other odd thing, which certainly corresponds to this, is that the king asks Elisha for permission to attack his enemy. Ancient kings didn't ask for permission. They granted permission at times, but they never asked for permission. They did whatever pleased them. All of this makes it clear that the king had conferred upon Elisha his power and authority. And what does he do? What does Elisha say in answer to the king's question, shall I strike them down? He says, no, don't strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you've taken captive? Now remember, these are people who were sent to seize and kill Elisha. These are people that want to see Elisha killed. This is very important to understanding this passage. These are people who want to see Elisha killed in a violent way. And yet... Elisha refuses to use the power and authority granted to him by the king to see the death of his enemies. Some of you, your minds are already processing. There was another man who was given great power and authority by a king. In fact, this man said, All authority on heaven and earth... Has been given to me. And that man too had the opportunity to see all of his enemies killed, to see them utterly destroyed. But he refused to exercise that power and authority to see his enemies killed. Like Elisha, that man's enemies wanted to see him die in a violent way. In fact, that man's enemies chanted in unison crucify him. Crucify him. But unlike Elisha, this man had the power to call down 10,000 angels, to rescue him and to scorch the earth, and to kill everyone who opposed him. But like Elisha, this man willingly surrendered. He set aside, he did not exercise, so to speak, the power that was his. Throughout the series, we've seen how Elisha is a forerunner of Jesus and how Elisha, as he healed the sick, cleansed lepers, brought back the dead to life, is meant to point us to and help us understand the miracles and the ministry of Jesus. Well, here, it's what Elisha doesn't do that points us to Jesus. Here's our final point this morning. By refusing to exercise the power available to him, Elisha points to the cross of Christ where Jesus willingly died for his enemies. No one took his life. He gave it up. When the enemy, with the enemy eager to take his life, Elisha is asked by the king, shall I strike them down? Elisha says, no, don't. And with those who were crying out for his death, jeering him, eager for him to die. We can imagine the angels of God asking the Lord Jesus, Shall I strike them down? And Jesus says, No. To the contrary, Jesus makes it clear, This is in fact why I've come, to die for my enemies. That sin that we talked about a few moments ago, that that rebellion against God that we're all guilty of, the perverse thoughts, the idolatrous ways, the self-seeking and so on, the selfish and perverse ways that we think, want, remember, and react, that sin condemns us and demands that we die. In fact, that sin demands that we spend all eternity apart from our Creator. That sin, every sin, renders us guilty before a holy God. And in order for the sin, that sin to be forgiven... A sacrifice had to be made. And it was a sacrifice that only a God-man could make. The sacrifice had to be God so that the payment would be accepted. And the sacrifice had to be man in order for that person to represent us. Only Jesus could be our sacrifice. Jesus came to take away that guilt, to remove that condemnation, and to bring us to God. And he did it willingly. He did it by refusing Philippians 1 and 2 to exercise his divine prerogatives and power when he could have called for the immediate death of all those who opposed him. Now think about this. The God of the universe, refusing to exercise the power available to him, and instead willingly subjecting himself to being beaten, mocked, scorned, and abused. This is the one who was there from the beginning, John 1 says. This is the one who put the stars in their place. This is the one who executed the the word of God in terms of creation. He subjected himself to a cruel death for our rebellion, for all the sins that we hate, but we keep on committing, for all the sins that we love, but we try to keep in secret. For all the sins that seem fairly harmless to us, but are actually an affront against the character of God. For all of those sins, and even the sins that seem to be too, too big to be forgiven. Jesus died so that we could be forever cleansed. His death secured our pardon Elisha's refusal to exercise the power available to him to smite his enemies points us to Jesus. And I believe there's one, one more thing we can learn about this, which is so beautiful. It's a, we learn about Jesus Christ and his salvation from Elisha's example. Not only does Elisha refuse to give the green light to the king for the execution of his enemies, but he says instead to show them grace. Look at, the, again, the first part of verse 23. So he prepared for them a great feast. That's so good. For those who want him dead, Elisha says to the king, No, prepare prepare for them a feast. Give them plenty of food and drink. Treat them as honored guests. Roll out the red carpet for them. And this is precisely what God the Father does for his children, for the sake of Christ. He doesn't just forgive us. Praise God for that. He doesn't just promise never again to remember our sins, praise God for that, but he celebrates us. He prepares a feast for us. Now, what what does a feast symbolize in the Bible? Well, certainly it symbolizes God's power, God's provision, that God takes care of his people and all that, and that's all beautiful stuff. But at the heart of it, a feast symbolizes what? Acceptance a seat of welcome at the table, a place of honor at the dinner that all symbolizes in a beautiful way acceptance. There was a study conducted in 2013 by sociologists who, who wanted to determine what is the greatest fear that plagues mankind? And so they surveyed you know, thousands of people. I don't remember the exact amount, but, but they said, and they just asked one single question, what are you most afraid of? What are you most afraid of? Now, I would think that the number one answer would surely be death, right? Death was actually number five. Think what, what four things could be more to be feared than, than that? The number one thing to be feared was public speaking, believe it or not. That was the number one thing in this survey. The number one thing that people thought about they were afraid of is to get up in front of a group of people and speak. Now, why would that be so terrifying? Well, It comes from a deeper fear, and that is the fear of judgment, right? The fear of being evaluated by a room full of people. The fear of having people, knowing that people ask, why does he look like that? Why does he talk like that? Why does he walk like that? What is he wearing? I'm a grown man who's been doing this for 21 years, and I still have mornings where I change shirts three times. True story. This is the one I planned to wear all along, so in case you're wondering. but and Actually, I did change one time, didn't I? I did change one. Um, but there's this fear of, of being judged, right? There's a fear of being judged. Even greater than the fear of dying is the fear of being judged. I read the, the comments of a, mom, a young mom recently who said, deep down I know that I should be perfect, and I'm not. I feel it when someone comes into my house And there's a mess in every corner. I know it when my children misbehave in public and I just want to hide. I can tell it when that empty feeling rises after I've spoken in haste, said too much, raised my voice, spoken in anger. There's the feeling in my stomach that I just can't shake when I know I've missed the mark of perfection and I am being judged. We all fear being judged because we all know that we're not perfect. We're not perfect what we should be. We're not as loving as we should be, as patient as we should be, as kind as we should be. And we could go on and on. Well, on the cross, Jesus took on not only our sin and shame, but he took on himself the judgment that we deserve. He was judged for us. He suffered The condemnation that we are due. He took on the wrath of the Father that was to be directed toward us. And what remains now for us is God's acceptance. If you are in Christ, if you've repented of your sin, put your faith in Jesus Christ, His work on the cross, His resurrection. If you're in Christ, you are clean and clear, set free from all judgment. The favor of God is forever with you because his death was final. And now there's a place set for you at God's table, which is a sign, among other things. But it is a sign and symbol of his acceptance and his approval and the fact that he, even now, is celebrating you who are in Christ And I've had person after person over the years, and I'm I'm done with this, who have said to me, "I I just can't believe that God is not upset at me. I just can't believe that God is not angry at me. I can't believe that God actually loves me and likes me. Well, the cross is the evidence. But the feast prepared by God is the confirmation. What we have to do is believe and live in light of it as those who are fully loved and forever accepted by God. And the, the feast confirms it, but it's the cross that is the undeniable and irrefutable evidence. And so we pray and we sing together, Jesus, keep us near the cross. Let's pray.